Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo. So today we're going to find out why the Governor-General spoke to our Mayor this week. We'll also look at what happened when the councillors toured Ginchilla Gardens. And is a decision about to be made in regards to the Macquarie River Master Plan. Hello there Matt, how are you? Yeah, very good thanks. A few things on there that are of great interest I think. I uh, think so too. I, I know some of the things we're going to talk about but I always get a bit intrigued by exactly how the conversation is going to go and where it's going to head today. Excellent. Yes, well I think there's a, a lot to be spoken about today I suggest in regards to it but I'd like to start off today in regards to your Merrill Memo this week. I actually found that quite interesting. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting little thing here I think in regards to anyone who takes on a, a role in our community of, of level of importance. There is this sense of the fact that you're always going to be in that position, aren't you? 24-7 almost, it feels like, that uh, you're walking down the street, um, you can't really sort of do that on a normal Sunday afternoon if someone comes and asks you a question in regards to whatever, that you've always got to feel as though you've got to be a bit alert on this in the sense that you're always wearing that Merrill hat. So I was interested in regards to what you're uh, alluding to in regards to that this week with your Merrill memo. So let's start with that. Yeah, sure. It is actually interesting, and I learnt the lesson very early in my council career. Way back April 2003, there was mm. the fire at Dubbo City Council headquarters, and so council moved out, all the council staff, the council meetings, etc., moved to the old Dubbo High building, which is now the Western Plains Cultural yes. Centre. And so I got elected back in March 2004, they were still meeting there, so we were actually meeting in classrooms. It was mm. a, a bit strange, just sitting yes. almost at a school desk, having council meetings, very serious council meetings, sitting at a school desk. But it was only a couple of months in. It was May 2004. And one of the councillors was asking the mayor of the day about a few things, and he was just trying to get him to a point where he wanted him to say a certain thing. And mm. it talked about the fact of, is, is your role something that you do nine to five? Is your role something you're doing 24 7, 365 days of the year? Hmm. When does your mayor role stop and when does it start? Right. And of course, the mayor of the day said, Well, I'm the mayor all the time. There's nighttime functions, there's a whole range of things that I do. Hmm. So it really is the fact that I'm the mayor all the time. Where this particular council was trying to go was he wasn't happy with some comments that the mayor had made about an airline. It's one of those leading questions. Sort it of moments, was a leading question. Yes. Absolutely right. So then once he said, yes, he's the mayor all day, every day, mm. then this councillor said, well, why were you saying this about this particular mm. airline? So basically it was a bit of a setup from the councillor. Mm. The old gotcha moments. Yeah, that's right. But what I learned from that at the time was, yeah, wow, that the, the mayor of the day, and probably councillors as well, really have to be, aware of the fact that everything they say, mm. they're saying with that hat on. It's almost impossible, I would say, for a councillor or a mayor to say, well, I'll just take off my councillor hat mm. or my mayoral hat for a minute, and this is my opinion as an individual, because that's never going to be reported that way. People aren't going to think of it that way. They're just going to say, councillor Billy Bloggs or Mayor Mary Bloggs said yeah. A, B and C. So it really is one of those things that you are – aware, you have to be aware of that. And where I was going with the mayoral memo that I wrote this week was a couple of things. Section 226 Part C of the Local Government Act says a few things, but basically one of the things it says is that the mayor is to be the principal spokesperson of the governing body, including representing the views of the council. Now, one mm. of the things that's interesting is I hate the idea when people ring a politician, a person, and, and a journal rings them and they say, what do you think about this? And they say, no comment. Mm. And I just think, well, no, you're in that position. You need to be able to give a comment. One of the challenging things, though, is as the mayor, if someone asks for my opinion and council has no official position on it, I'm reluctant to give my individual view because it will never be construed as that. It yes. will always be yes, the council view. the mayor speaking sort of thing. And yes. let me give you an example. Superannuation, there's been some changes that have been proposed by the federal government yes. around superannuation. Once you've got over $3 million in your super, then you'll start to pay a higher tax rate. They're talking about maybe 1% of the population across the nation's affected. So that means in Dubbo Regional Council, you've probably got five or 600 people that are impacted by sure. that. Yep. The federal government controls superannuation laws. Mm. Councils don't. It affects some of our residents, but we have no ability to control that. And at best, we could possibly have a resolution of council that says that we send a letter off to the Prime Minister of the day to say, we don't like this, it's impacting our residents, or this mm. is a great idea, make it $2 million rather than $3 million. Mm. 
But again, do we really want to be meddling in something that's not our business? So if a journal asks me, and I have been asked this exact question, right, yes. what do I think about the superannuation changes? Then I've got my own personal opinion about the superannuation changes. But as soon as I say what I think about that, that looks like an official council position. Mm. And if I'm a councillor on W Regional Council and I suddenly hear the Mayor of W Regional Council talking about superannuation changes and that opinion might be different to that council's opinion, they say, well, who gave you the authority to start saying that? There's no council resolution on the books. There's no considered opinion. There's been no mm. debate about it at council. Why are you going off there looking like you're representing the council's view? And I said, oh, no, no, that was just my view, but it can never just be my view. Mm. It's always going to end up be seeing, be seen as the view of the council. So it's a tough position. Mm. So as much as I hate no comment, then there are times when I need to say, there's no official position we've got. Now, if councillors mm. aren't happy with that, then we need to have a notice of motion come forward. We need to form an opinion. We need to debate that at council, go through that process, consider the views of the mm. community and come up with a position. Then the next time I'm asked, I can say, well, here's a particular position of mm. that. And the other thing that's an example that I'll use from council, and this is back when I was mayor of Dubbo City Council, not currently. Right. There was a vote, I remember, at council that I lost. There was a debate about it at council. It went through things, and I was very determined, very strong about the way I wanted to go with that. I lost the vote. The next day I was on radio, and I was asked about that particular item. So I had to talk about that mm. item, the complete opposite of what my personal view it was. It puts in a bit of a difficult situation, I suggest. It does, but I go back to that 226 Part C, which says that I'm the principal spokesperson of the governing body of the mm. council, and I need to represent the views mm. of the council. So it didn't matter that right. I voted to go one particular direction and I lost that vote. Mm. I had to represent the views of the council. Mm. And it's the same with councillors. Yes. I, I encourage all the councillors to debate things till the cows come home, talk about things, talk out in the community, talk at council meetings, talk in the media, whatever, mm. before a decision's made. I think it's really important too in regards to that, that as listeners, we all understand now the, the fact that this is all part of what, if you step into council, you become a councillor, this becomes part of what the expectation is. Uh, when you sit in that role, this is all how it works. Mm. So therefore, any public comments can always be perceived as regard as that's what your role is, as opposed to the person in who you are as a person, I suggest. And there's that fine line. So before a decision's made of council, I say, I love councillors out there talking to the media, talking to friends, mm. social media, whatever you want about your opinion. Once the decision's made, that's when you have to accept the, mm. the decision. You have to accept the democratic process. We've argued till the cows come home. We've had mm. a group of duly elected councillors sitting around a room debating it, and then there's a vote. Mm. And once that vote's done, once there's a resolution of council, that's the end of it. We move on. Yeah. And that's a really... You've got to be really disciplined mm. because sometimes you're thinking, oh, no, I didn't vote for this. This is terrible. But mm. you've got to be talking about the view of the council. Yes. So it's a, an interesting yeah. one, but an interesting process. But again, that discipline is really important there. Yeah. You've got to forget about your individual views because you've had the debate. The debate's gone whichever way. Mm. Move on to the next item. Yeah. No, mm. Very well done. Good mm. job. Well, Matt, look, during the week, uh, you had a, a phone call. A very interesting phone call. It's a phone call I can honestly say I've never received. And this is from the Governor-General of Australia. Now, this is David Hurley. So this is uh, a very exciting uh, phone call, I'd suggest. That I know you've spoken to uh, this gentleman before. And from what I can gather, he seems like an absolutely wonderful man. He is a very caring man. Yeah. Um, tell me, so in regards to the details, why, why the phone call this week? What actually happened? Yeah, so His Excellency General, the Honourable David Hurley, AC, DSC, retired. My apologies to... <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hurley for to, to not accurate. giving him the exact sort of title there. And he is a nice enough gentleman that he doesn't expect you to address Excellent. him in oh, that no, way yes. all the time. My bad, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but he is a, a very caring gentleman and I've been very mm. impressed with him. He actually visited Dubbo when he was the governor of New South Wales. Right. So he came okay. out there, we were contacted by his office and I spent a day with him. Actually, we went through a few things, sat down in the office, talked about a few things, and then he said, well, I'd like to just go for a walk around the streets, and can you take me for a walk down the main street and take me to a few random shops? So we did that, and I was very impressed that he just seemed to be able to strike up conversations with people, mm. and I, I think just made people feel comfortable that there was someone as the governor who was doing a great job. Mm. Then he managed to become the governor general. Peter Cosgrove retired, and yes. he stepped into that role, and I had a couple of conversations with him just when I'd see him at events, so for example, there's the Australian local government conference that happens in Cambridge here, so I'd run into him at that okay. and had a quick chat to him. But then I got a message from his personal assistant 
last year, about October last year, right. and said, uh, have you got time to talk to the Governor-General? Now, most of the time when people say, have you got time to do that? I can make time. It's that's all right. right. Don't worry. Yeah, look, sorry. I'm, I yeah. thought I might just go for a run this afternoon. A bit too busy. But no, <laughs> no, of course. call me after this time? I'm yeah, that's right. A bit right. busy now. That's so, right. So, yes, you, you clear your schedule for the Governor-General mm, to call. Absolutely. And you wanted to inquire about how Dubbo was faring through the floods, through the, the long period of extended rain and floods that we yeah. had last year. So, I received a phone call from him and his wife, Linda Hurley. Oh, wow. And so, we chatted for that particular time, it was probably 30 or 40 minutes, yeah. and really just gave an update and just very interested in what was happening with Dubbo. And yeah. I also had a bit of an update on what was happening with him at the time. Mm. And the same thing happened this week when his PA contacted me and said, Matt, David would like to catch up with you about the bushfires that have occurred, the Cranbrook bushfire and the bushfire down near Burundong. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, just wanted to see how things were, were going there. Mm. And so, again, had the phone call, uh, set up the appointment, had the phone call, and yeah. spent probably about 30 minutes on the phone with him this time. And again, just finding out about how things were happening. And, and from his perspective, it really was interested about what was happening, mm takes a great deal of care and interest in what was happening, yeah. but also was interested to know the the long-term prognosis for that, how were the farmers affected, how were the volunteers, because lots of volunteers mm. were involved with the Rural Fire Service, for example, and really wanted me to pass on his thanks, the Commonwealth's thanks, to yeah. all of those people out there who are risking their life and limb out yeah. there on the front line. Yeah. Also had a chance to talk to him about what he was up to. His daughter just got married last weekend, so oh, that was pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, three grandkids. He just had two of his grandkids yeah. visiting over the so last So there's a real days. relationship that I think you've developed here with uh, David Hurley. Well, one of the things that I was particularly impressed when he did visit Debo as the governor mm. was we well, I was at the time organising some cricket matches where we were having Debo city councillors play councillors from O-Rock Council. So oh, yeah, it was a, a yeah, little yeah. annual match we'd set up yep. and to were playing. And it just so happened as a fluke that the day that he was in Dubbo, there was that afternoon, was probably five or six o'clock that afternoon, was this annual cricket match that right, we'd organised. Right. And I said to him, I said, look, while you're in town, would you like to come down and play a bit of cricket? And he said, oh, look, I might come down. And I didn't think he'd mm. actually turn up. But sure enough, we got down there and he's turned up and, oh, it's fantastic. So yeah, we yeah. quickly cleared a spot in the team for him, yep, yep. sent him in to bat. And Jeff, you're out of the open. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> the, the GG's filling in for you. That's right. And uh, he went out and he was quite impressive. And, yeah. and I talked to some of his staff that were there and I said, wow, he actually hits the ball fairly well. Yeah. And he said, oh, well, he won't talk about this much, but he used to play first grade in grade cricket in a local <laughs> competition. And yeah, that was a few years ago, but yeah. he still had the skills wow. there. So wow. I think he was impressed with the fact that he could just slot into that role and be yeah. just one of the boys in a cricket yeah. match. And he also does a bit with bees. He likes to keep some bees, keep some honey. Yeah. And so we found out about that just through conversations with him. And so we actually had some artwork that was done up by someone that we knew who actually did drawings of different types right. of bees, all these different variety yeah. of bees out there. So we actually had that framed up and sent it to him as a present from Dubbo to mm. say, thanks for visiting. And I know he's mentioned that to me a couple of times that that's got pride of place and he's down in one of his offices. Oh, straight uh, to the pool room, that one. That's suggest. right. Yeah. yeah. So again, it's one of those things that you try and develop those relationships yeah. because you never know when you might need the Governor-General to help Absolutely. out the situation, yeah. if there's something you can do. Yeah. But again, just having that relationship and finding out what's going on, talked about some visits he's got coming up to Vietnam to mm. continue those international relationships as much as I really focus on local relationships, mm. whether it be council to Governor-General or even I sit down with each councillor each month and just have a, an hour chat over a coffee about nothing in particular. Mm. You want to keep building those relationships mm. up because the times when you need an urgent conversation or a difficult conversation, if you build up those relationships, it makes it much easier. So where I'm doing that on a local level, he was talking about a trip he's got coming up to Vietnam, 50th anniversary of international relations with Vietnam, for example. Right, right. And again, he feels his job is to keep those international relationships going. It's yeah. the same thing that I do on a local level. Yeah. He might need to talk to Vietnam at some stage, or the so Prime Minister might need to talk to Vietnam. So I, I, I love this about this guy. Again, I've never met him, but what you're telling me here, I'm so inspired by what this gentleman does because of the fact that, here you go, he's, he's talking about needing to develop relationships with, with Vietnam, and obviously after the Vietnamese War and stuff like that, and keeping these very positive relationships going since then, feeling us important part of his role. But then he comes back to a local level here in Dubbo and he's, he's talking to our local mayor for half an hour about how things going with the bushfires and everything's like that. Now, I just find that quite extraordinary that he's he's over everything. Yeah. He really is. And in touch, I think, is, yeah. is yeah, very impressive. So it was a pleasant conversation. Great to see that the Governor-General knows that we exist, knows yeah. that Dubbo exists, I think it's, it's, it's an important thing. There are approximately 537 councils mm. across the nation. 
Yeah. And I'm not sure how many of those receive a semi-regular phone call from the Governor-General of Australia. Yeah. But it is nice to think that the Governor-General is interested in what happens here in Dubbo and what happens or what is happening with our residents. That is fantastic. Now, speaking of relationships, uh, you got a chance during the week to meet uh, this guy by the name of Brenton Charlton. Now, Brenton Charlton, for anyone who may not know him, like myself up until right now, is the new VRA commissioner. Now, the VRA commissioner, of course, would be the, let me get this right, the Volunteer Rescue Association, VRA, is that right? Yeah, Excellent. There you go. I, the memory's starting to come back beautifully on that one. <laughs> so you got a chance to meet him. So this is a really addressing part too, because again, it's a cross in regards to what you do as the mayor. Uh, again, developing these relationships with these very important people. Now, so during the week, you got a chance to meet him. So tell me about this new commissioner. Yeah, so he's taken over the role now, replaced the, the retiring commissioner. Mm-hmm. His background, he's had about 30 years of background in police and police rescue. Okay. Moving over to VRA. It's a good background to have, isn't it? Oh, Oh, absolutely mm. right. But moving over to the VRA, he finds an interesting challenge because in the police force, in police rescue, you've got all paid personnel. In the VRA, the Volunteer Rescue Association gives mm. it away a little bit, Yes, mostly made up of volunteers. Yes. So he's got a different challenge in how he deals with that whole group. But it was really just a chance to hear what his plans are, hear about things that are happening with the VRA. Dubbo is very important for the VRA. Mm. His office is in Homebush. Right. But in terms of Dubbo, Dubbo is an important part in the overall picture because the VRA mm. focuses on regional areas. Sometimes in mm. Sydney, you've really got police rescue to do a lot of the work down there. But in yep. regional areas, there isn't the same level of police support. So you rely on the Volunteer Rescue Association. Mm. It actually started as a result of that. Max Walters, who some people may remember yes, in Dubbo, yes, yes. he and, and he's passed away now, Max, but his wife, Roz, I still see her at various functions. Right. But Max was instrumental in getting the VRA started here in Dubbo. And there's a bit of debate about that, and we did have a bit of a discussion about right. that with the, the new commissioner, because he is firmly of the belief, and he's got the paperwork to prove it, that the police force in 1972 started up VRA to try and help out regional areas. And I think that is probably true, Mm. but if you talk to locals, they'll talk about the fact that Max Walters and some local people were real drivers behind Mm. the VRA, Mm. and that goes back to about 69, the locals believe that Max really started to push this whole concept. Now, I think the truth is probably a combination of, I think it probably ended up being people like Max and some locals who said, we really need this, and they pushed it and tried to do some things at a local level, and then the police force probably came along and said, we need to formalise this, yep. and in 72 they probably formalised what had already been started. Which would make more sense, I think. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. But again, you've got a commissioner there. There are probably eight or nine full-time staff across the whole VRA, the commissioner being one of them, and mm. that seems fair enough. Mm. You've got a commissioner who's got to manage a whole range of assets, physical assets, we're talking about mm. vehicles and buildings. You've also got someone who's got to manage a whole bunch of volunteer staff. Mm. Mm. So you've got... A fairly big job for someone to do. So I wouldn't expect that position to be a voluntary position, and it's yes. not. That's paid. Yes. And there are staff that work for Brenton and, and work in different areas, but again, only eight or nine across the whole state yeah. to run the entire Volunteer Rescue Association. They're such an integral part of the whole big picture scheme of things, aren't they? You know, when it comes to, you know, you've got your fire, the police, the ambulance, but the volunteer, the VRAs are, are, are such an important part of that as well, aren't they? So did the commissioner come out here this week to just to meet and greet, or was there a particular purpose he came out for? Or? Yeah, he did have a particular purpose, but just I'll go back one step there. Mm. One of the things I think that's really important for the commissioner, and I think Brenton's background will lend itself to this, is you've got those different agencies. You've mentioned a few of them there. You've also got the SES, the State Emergency Service. You've got all these different agencies that, depending on the type of emergency, you've got different things they might need to do and different lead agencies, but you want to be able to rely on each other, Mm. and they've all got different specialties. So depending on what is actually happening, you might need different people to come in. And I saw an example, we talked last week, and I went out to the fire control centre. Mm, And one of the examples that I saw there, which gives you that nuance of differences there, is that the Rural Fire Service was out fighting fires at Cranbrook and down near Burundong. Mm. One of the fires near Burundong was getting close to some buildings. Right. The Rural Fire Service called in the normal fire brigade. Yep. Because their expertise is with buildings, and there was a building under threat down near Burundong, so they believe, the Rural Fire Service believed that 
the best team to have on the ground for that mm. was the fire brigade rather than the rural fire service. Mm. The rural fire service could then focus on trying to stop the fire getting to that building. But if it got to that building, they believed the fire brigade was better. Now, you and I as amateurs might go, well, it's a fire. Surely mm. you all know how to fight a fire. But you get to the level where you're that specialised yes. that you're dealing with a building or you're dealing with a, a grass fire or a fire in timber which is different and the way you might attack that is different. Mm. So you have got these various mm. nuances and various differences It's a peace there. of mind for all of us knowing that these specialist departments are out there as well and these specialist, specialist groups as well. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So I'll move on now to mm. your other question you asked in terms of what was the commissioner doing in Dubbo. Yeah. He didn't just come to Dubbo to see me. I'd like to think really? that would be the case. Oh, okay. but no, Surprising. Okay. Yeah, exactly <laughs> fine. Uh, but he was in Dubbo. It was Paddy's Day. 17th oh, of St. March. Patrick's, yes, yes. Exactly okay. right. And, of course, Paddy's Day is associated with green. The VRA uniform is green. So they I'm have glad you made that connection for me because I was a little bit lost there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have their annual award ceremony on the 17th of March. Ah, now, I couldn't yes. get anyone to confirm for me that they do it deliberately for St. Paddy's Day, but I am guarantee surely yep. the only reason they do it on the 17th of March is because they wear green yeah. and it seems to that's tie in quite nicely. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't think it's anything to do with leprechauns <laughs> or, or Guinness or anything like that. Maybe a few short people on the staffing there, maybe. It's their chance for the day, I don't know. <laughs> maybe they started off with that. But there was the award ceremony, so they basically had the VRA Rescue Service Awards and Medal Presentation Ceremony. Excellent, excellent. And with various emergency services, I get the privilege of going along to different emergency services mm. to see medals handed out, awards given, and it's always one of those things that you sit back and listen to some of the efforts that people have put in, mm. and you think, wow, these people are unbelievable. And whether they're paid or they're volunteers, mm. they're still risking their life and oh, limb to absolutely. get out there and do things. Yes, and yes. to give you a demonstration of just how integrated they are in what's happening in the community, sure. the MC for the award ceremony was actually a little bit late. So right. the award ceremony started at two o'clock. And by five past two, the MC turned up and, really sorry, folks, we were meant to start at two o'clock. And he did look a bit, not flustered, but he looked mm. like he was a bit hot and sweaty. He looked like he'd been out doing some work. Mm. Mm. And so he did the award ceremony, ran the process as MC, gave it lots of awards. But I actually just grabbed him afterwards and said, oh, mm. what happened? You looked like you were pretty hot and flustered. And mm. he said, well, we actually had a rescue we had to do. And... I was on the team to do it. So even wow. though I was MC for here, yeah, yeah. I ran out there. My on, job called first. There exactly it was, right. Yeah. On the other side of Narromine, there was an elderly gentleman in his 80s right. out on a farm. He was doing something relatively simple, but yeah. nothing's ever simple on a farm, no. changing a tyre on mm. one of his farm vehicles. And something happened and the vehicle ended up collapsing on top of him. Oh, no. So... Is he uh, all right? Or? He is, yeah. Right, but right. a call went into triple zero. So first thing you do, triple zero, what's your emergency? So you would think the logical thing was ambulance. Yep. But of course, the triple O operators are fantastic. Mm. They know who they've got to send into various situations. We need to get an ambulance out. There's a gentleman with a car on top of him. But the ambulance aren't set up to get a car off someone before they can start to treat mm. that person. Mm. So of course, VRA, their specialty is when it comes to rescues, in particular with cars. Yep, yep. So, of course, the call goes into the ambulance, call goes into the VRA. Yep. This gentleman told me that he and the VRA team arrived on site before the ambulance. Well, first on scene as well. First on scene. Now, yep. that yep. makes it pretty tough because Absolutely. you've got a you don't gentleman know what you're there. Confront. Yeah. Well, it's not just a matter of let's extract this person from yeah. underneath the car. You've actually got to deal with the human. Yeah. Is he alive? Is yeah. he alive? What do we do? Yeah. How do we treat him? Is it going to cause a problem when we lift this car? The ambulance aren't here. Mm. Do we sit around and twiddle our thumbs and say, oh, sorry, Jimmy, mm. we know Can't there's a car that. on top of you, but we'll get it off soon. Yeah. No. So they've got to actually treat the individual mm. as well as extract him from the car. Now they jack the car up, extract him from the car, treated him, and then the ambulance wow. turned up not long after that and obviously took over. It took them several hours to yeah. stabilise him before they could actually transport him Goodness and away me. he went. Now, yeah. what I was told by the VRA person was that he'll be okay. He probably won't use that arm or shoulder for a long time, mm. if at all, mm. where the car was actually sitting on top of him. But he's okay. Mm. But again, this is the sort of thing. And next thing you know, the guy comes in yeah. and he's MC, MC an for an award yeah. ceremony. It's a great, <laughs> a wonderful sort of story though, isn't it? Sort of, it to it sort is. of show what these guys do. And the point that was made at the award ceremony was that some of those awards they gave out in the day for long service. And it's yeah. not as if, oh, you've been in here for 20 years, Mark, we'll give you an award. Mm. The 
the point that was made was that these long service awards are only given out to people that have had sustained mm. and significant achievement. So just mm. being in the VRA for 20 years is not enough to get a 20-year award. You've got to show that you've given sustained service and it's been significant. You've actually mm. done something in your time there. Yeah, you haven't wow. just turned yeah. up to some training programs and that's it. Yeah. So it is significant. And again, a number of people, and I won't go through all the people that yeah. – got awards on the day, but a number of people got awards and we heard some of their stories. And again, mm. you're out there doing these things and it's fantastic. And most of these people are volunteers. So yeah. they are people out there. It, it actually makes you feel good oh, about absolutely. mankind when you yeah. hear and see some of these stories about people out there doing some fantastic work yeah. to help fellow mankind. And I've said it before and I'll probably say it a lot of times again, mm. if I'm going to be involved in an accident, I'm not planning on it, but if I'm going to be involved yes. in an accident or have an emergency or have a disaster, mm. I don't think there are many better spots in the world than out here because we're so well served by our volunteers, by mm. our emergency personnel, by our different services, and they're all so good at what they do. Mm. And it's just incredible the amount of training they do. And many of these people who are volunteers are doing this training in their own time, volunteering. They're not getting mm. paid for doing this. But even the people who are paid, they are very well trained. I think we've got great training programs. It's just so, so inspiring, isn't it, to know the fact that these people in our community – they're just emceeing events. <laughs> These sort of people like that, you know, sitting in the audience there with us sort of stuff, having a cup of tea, you know, a cup of tea or a coffee, whatever, down at the local. And they're out there doing these extraordinary things and uh, just doing it without any need for praise or you know, help or you know, acclamation, but they're just out there doing it. And we're surrounded by them. This, it really does. It, it makes us, uh, it makes our heart feel very warm. It does. And, and Mark Colton, who was, the, he was our federal member, obviously, he was at the ceremony. He told a funny little story mm. where he said he was at a previous event with the VRA in another town. And he said he was there at the, the ceremony and then afterwards having a cup of tea. And he said, so there was him and his wife and a number of VRA personnel there. And he said, next thing you know, some beepers started going off. Mm. And he said, and we looked around and there was him and his wife left because the beeper goes off. It doesn't matter. They're an award ceremony, having a cup of tea, whatever. Sorry, beeper's gone. We're out of here. Sorry about that. Got to go. Wow. That's amazing. Now, it looks as though during the week, uh, Matt, the the councillors all got the chance to go out to Ginchilla. Ginchilla, isn't it? Ginchilla Gardens out there, uh, just outside of Dubbo. It's on the north Dubbo side, heading out there. Now, the gardens have been around for many, many years. And they go back to the time of John Rosa when he developed these gardens. And I remember as a kid going out to Ginchilla and checking out the, the absolutely gorgeous garden settings and, and how it all was out there. John sold all, all the, the gardens a number of years ago. Now, over the last few years, uh, I think it's, it's been taken over by uh, one of the is it the Aboriginal one of the Aboriginal corporations in town. I think has taken over the Chinchilla Gardens. Um, now, you guys went out there just during the week, and I noticed that Councillor Burns was with you, and um, some pretty cool things happened. So, what went down at Chinchilla? Let us in on the story on the bus. One of the things that I'm very keen, and we've been doing it over the last year, but very keen for our councillors to do is to get out and see council facilities, but also mm. just see various things that are in the community. So we've been for tours through things like the water treatment plant to understand how that works. You've got so many different council facilities we've been to. Uh, for example, in Wellington, the tip down there. It doesn't sound Jeez, that exciting. that a great trip. How good would that have been? <laughs> That's oh, right. Pity I missed that one. But it's, it's those sort of things, just knowing the various facilities. But sometimes yes. we might go for a tour through something different. So, for example, we've been down to Wellington to one of the wind farms down there just to have a look at that. Yes. So understanding what's in our community, understanding all these different things. One of the things I did say to Lewis, who's mm. one of our counsellors, mm. and he plays a didgeridoo very well, Right. Yes. I actually said to him months ago, I said, one of the things that I really want to make sure we do, Lewis, is get you to teach the counsellors how to play a didgeridoo. Oh, excellent. And, and he did promise that he'd teach the counsellors. He said, I'm not sure if it's success because not mm-hmm. everyone's successful, but he said, I'll, I'll give them a lesson anyway, mm-hmm. at the very least. So I talked to him recently, I said, oh, we've got to get that didgeridoo lesson. He said, oh, well, let's do it. But he said, let's do a tour out through Chinchilla mm. and have a look at what's happening out there. Yes. And you're spot on. I'm not sure about if you remember when you were a kid, though. You might might be a little bit putting yourself a bit younger there because I think Johnny Rosa actually set up that cafe and function centre out at Chinchilla around 1990s. I'm not sure if you still describe yourself well, as a kid exactly. I, I might have been uh, stretching the, the a young adult, that maybe. one. Yeah, a young adult might have been. It seemed like a long time ago. <laughs> but it was a long time ago. 1990 is a long time ago. And I, I do remember taking my kids out there. I remember being to weddings out there. Yes, yes And so I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, unfortunately, Johnny Rosa actually said that the GST 
hit him too hard. Mm. And mm. in November 2001, it was sold. Johnny Rose put it up to auction. Mm. And it was bought by the Indigenous Land Corporation, $520,000 they paid for it. Right. And they said at the time they bought it on behalf of traditional owners mm. in a land acquisition deal. As it turns out, now the owners, and I'm not sure if it's owners is the right word or leaseholders of that, yep. but the Tubagar Radri Direct Descendants Aboriginal Corporation okay. are the ones who control that parcel of land now, 12.14 hectares it is. Mm -hmm. Lewis is on that the board of that particular okay. organisation as yep. one of the traditional owners. Mm. They've got some incredible plans for that area okay. in terms of the cultural significance, mm. doing things with maybe some Aboriginal youth out there. But it was good for us to go out there and have a look and just be mm. aware of some of the things that are out there and just really go around and look at the historical significance mm. of that. So Lewis was very keen and excited to show us around there. Yeah. There's also so, so are there some Aboriginal sites out there as well? In the well, there's a graveyard in the reserve next to there or, or the okay. area next to that. So yep. there's actually a grave site for specifically for traditional owners, so right. Tupagar people yes. who want to be buried out there and there's a process that would go through for that. John Rosa did talk about it. There was actually a woman and a young person dug up when he was putting the pond in. Oh. So they found some remains for, they estimate, maybe a 30 or 40-year-old woman and an approximately 11-year-old person right. who were dug up there when they were doing that. So there were some artefacts found around there as well. So there's yeah. obviously some there historical some cultural significance. significance there. Yeah, yeah absolutely okay. right. And I think oh, you've also got some of the scar trees there as well. Oh, yes. And they've been yes. moved out to there. There were some that were talked about being used in town, but they've been moved out there and mm. there'll be an exhibition because mm. we've got one of the museums in Australia that's got some of those scar trees from Dubbo. Okay. And again, we want to get them back to mm. be here. Mm. And so they'll be on display out there. So all sorts of plans for all sorts of wonderful mm. things to happen out there. Oh, excellent. But that was all fascinating. But we also got to have a didgeridoo lesson. Now, I didn't realise this, and this is my ignorance, mm. but it's not culturally appropriate to teach a female to play a didgeridoo or actually to have a female play a didgeridoo. Yep. There's a bit of debate about that, but Lewis said, I'm not comfortable teaching our female counsellors, sure. one of whom is his sister. Yes. And so yes, that was go. okay. So yes. right now, well, we won't teach the females. They can sit around and watch and, yeah. and laugh at how bad we were. Yeah. But we actually did some didgeridoo Did you playing. manage to uh, get to play it okay in the end? Or we made noises. You made noises. I'm yes, not yeah. sure that I'll describe it. Although Matt Wright <laughs> was actually pretty good. The circle of course of Matt breathing. Wright would have done something. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> he's, he's always number one of these things. He's a very competitive bloke. We spoke about Matty in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the circular breathing was the real trick. So you could you could make a bit of a noise out of the didgeridoo. Again, it wasn't anywhere near as good as, say, the noise that Lewis would make. Yes. But getting the circular breathing, getting so you could have constant noise coming out, that's obviously the trick. And some people that play some musical wind instruments mm. might have already had that technique down pat. But that was the funny part, trying to get us to do mm. that. And Lewis had some tricks there to try and help us yeah. do that. But anyway, we, we've gone through... A great experience, though. It's yeah, that's right. Lewis yeah, made yeah. up some little didgeridoos for us to basically mm. have and, and keep and go home mm. and keep practicing there. So I didn't bring it into the studio here today mm. to actually go through and play because I'm not yeah. sure that would help our listening audience. Yeah, it <laughs> would help my ears either, I don't think. <laughs> but look, it's, it is interesting. And it's one of those things, it, it does actually build relationships amongst counsellors going and doing well, things like that. I'm glad you raised that. That's one of the points I was just going to talk to you about is the fact that today we are talking about relationships and it seems to be a pretty common theme running through our discussions. And this is another example, I'd suggest, as, as to why these things are so important. You know, if you're going to be there, you're working with these people regularly, you're in communication with these people regularly, I would be thinking the fact that the better the relationship is, when it comes down to those difficult discussions, and again, we've already raised this today, that it's, it's got to be a lot easier then to have those discussions with each other um, about anything. It doesn't really matter. As if you've got a relationship with a person, it just becomes so much easier to have those discussions. And I think a lot of that comes down to respect. Absolutely. So you can have a relationship yeah. with someone. You can have respect. You don't have to agree with them. Mm. You don't have to say, well, we must all sing from the same songbook. You can have different opinions. Yes. But if you're spending time together and know people a bit more as an individual, find out a bit more about them, even just sitting around trying to play didgeridoo and, and laughing at how bad we are with each other, those yeah. sort of relationships are really important. Mm. When it comes to a debate in the council chambers, mm. then it's not a matter of writing off, oh, Mark, you've got no mm. idea what you're talking about. Mm. Oh, you're such mm. an idiot. Oh, that stupid thing you're saying there. Yep. You're less likely to say that. You're like more a social likely, media post sort of thing almost, <laughs> isn't it? That's right. <laughs> you're more likely to listen to what you've got to say and say, well, look, Mark, I do respect mm. you and I've got a good relationship with you. I don't agree with what you're saying there, but here's my point of view. Yes. And yeah. sometimes out of having 
respectful conversations, you get a better solution. Yes. As soon as you write something off from someone else because you go, oh, that person's an idiot and they've got no idea what they're talking about, mm. you don't actually open your ears and listen mm. to what they've got to say. Mm. So I am a fan of it. Mm. I'm a fan of those relationships, but I'm also a fan of our counsellors knowing some of the things that are in our community, yeah. just being aware of them. I think that's important, and I think people have that respect for you if you do take the time to find out about yep. things that are in our community around us because when we're making decisions, we need to be considering all of the community and it's impossible to know about everything, but the mm. more you know about the community, the better decisions you can make. Oh, I agree. This is a little interesting little one here, Matt, in regards to Voice of the Bush. Now... I just want to know, is, is this a, a not-for-profit group, I suppose, the first thing? And um, are they a, an organisation or where are they from? They came actually to town during the week and spoke to the councillors. Um, so I suppose there's a couple of things there, isn't already in that little bit of an intro. Who are they? Um, what did they speak to council about? And, and what's what's their background? And what's, what's their intent and purpose here in town? Yeah, so Boys to the Bush, it's worthwhile Googling and having a look at them. Okay. I hadn't heard of them before, but no. again, there are organisations that sometimes want to come and talk to Sounds council. like a country and western band. <laughs> it would be a good band, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> They're back uh, in town. Yeah, they that's right. But uh, it's one of those things where you see various individuals and groups of people who can see that there are some people who are vulnerable yes. in our community, who have got less fortunate circumstances for a whole range of reasons, mm. and they think they might be able to do something to help. Now, I think of organisations like Clontarf. I think Clontarf do an excellent yes, job absolutely. in Dubbo. Yes. And they're very focused on young Aboriginal boys who they want to be able to give better life circumstances, yes. better life outcomes to, and I think they do have some great they results. I've seen them in practice. They, they do a wonderful job. Yeah, Clontarf, and, yes. and I think of things like Leader Life in Dubbo, yes, Joe, Joe Leader. Leader there, yes. Yeah, so again, doing some great work. And one that's not really in Dubbo, although I think he's done a little bit of work with Leader Life with Joe Leader, mm. is uh, um, Bernie Shakeshaft, Backtrack. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, so I think Bernie's actually linked up there too with Leader Life as well. I think in some way, shape or form, I think. patrons, I think, of Leader Life as well. Yeah, I'm sure they, they do do some work together. Mm. And so you've got these various organisations. Boys to the Bush is another one of those okay. where some people, I think it started down at Albury, had some ideas about doing some things where they might take some boys from the city and bring them out to the bush and give them a bit of a bush experience. Mm. And as it developed and went on, they found that it wasn't really focused on people from the city. It was really mm. just any boys that were living in circumstances less than ideal. Mm. And unfortunately, we know from various things that we see and read, there are people who young people, boys and girls, but young people who fear going home. Mm. They have parents who maybe are drug or alcoholic dependent. There is significant family violence, domestic violence in the household. That yes. domestic violence often goes to some of the children. So there are people out there who I've been lucky, I'm sure you've been lucky, who yes. have grown up in a wonderful family environment where we didn't see that. So no, it's not... Right. It's, it's probably difficult for us to understand because we just haven't seen or experienced that. But there are people. Mm. I've been out to a juvenile justice facility here in Dubbo and I've spent time with some of the kids out there and they've told me that they like being in the juvenile justice system because they're not being beaten up, they're not being raped, they get three mm. meals a day. It's Such a safe a environment. It's a situation, isn't it? It is. And yeah. I, I would think that that would be terrible being locked up in a yeah. jail. and I jail's probably, worse, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it seems pretty harsh, I suppose, to call that juvenile justice centre a jail, but it's still, they haven't got freedom. They can't just yeah. go downtown if they want to. Yeah. But it opened my eyes when I talked to them. I went out there years ago doing some various bits and pieces of work out there, and it really opened my eyes to hear from some of these kids out mm. there saying that this is a nice environment, and if I get out... I'll go and commit a crime so I can come back in here. That's how bad That's their home life is. such a poor was. indictment on their, their life at home, isn't it? When it you're is, hearing yeah. that. Absolutely. So Boys to the Bush is another one of these programs. And, mm. and I had a slight concern when we had the discussion. I had a slight concern that you were competing for the same dollars mm. and to a certain extent the same people mm. in the community. When we've got things like Lead Life, got things like Clontarf and other organisations yeah, that got various point. programs. Yeah. And again, that was really a discussion point, but mm. went through a process and understood a bit more about how they work and their funding. And most of their funding, probably 80% of their funding, comes through from state departments where they've got boys they need to refer to this program and then they actually get paid by the state department. So so the boys being identified 
through the, the state system, I'd suggest. There's been and, something and that's probably happened. They are, might are these have, guys counsellors or are they – Well, like, what's, what's it, their I don't know. intention? Yeah, I don't know the qualifications of the people involved. It was really just an introductory, here we are, we're going to be setting up in WA and Wellington soon. Okay. It came on the back of the renewable energy zone that we've talked about before hmm. with some of the wind farms, batteries, solar farms, etc., that are being installed throughout mainly the Bedenga area, the Wellington area. Hmm. Some of those want to be able to give some money back to the community, a bit of a social license payment, if you like, okay. just to, to contribute to the community. Yep. And one of the companies that are putting a battery in have actually reached out to Boys of the Bush and they're contributing some startup oh, okay. money for them to right. start right. in this okay. area. Yeah, right. So they're already established. They've got a staff of probably 50 or 60 already. Yep. They'll be establishing in Dubbo and Wellington, so probably two staff members in Wellington, one in Dubbo to start with, and then go from there. Mm. But again, when people talk about Renewable Energy Zone, mm. what does it do for us? Mm. Well, here's a really good example of on the ground, we'll see some additional services for boys mm. in our region. Who are vulnerable all vulnerable, yep. who will be given better circumstances because a battery is being installed yeah. in Wellington part of the renewable <laughs> energy zone. It's funny how that works, isn't it? It, it is. is. So keep an eye out for them. They probably mm. aren't going to start till maybe July, August sort of time frame. It was really okay. just an introduction here. Yeah. The recommendation that we certainly gave when we sat around with them as councillors was make sure you have conversations with Clontarf, with Leader Life, do your best to work in with them yep. rather than be competing against oh, them. That's a very smart move. I'd and, and that's I think there's room for all these organisations. There yeah. are still vulnerable people out there, yep. but working with them I think was a smarter yeah. way to go about it. So keep an eye for them. I'm sure you'll see things appear and things that are happening out there mm. in the community with yeah, them. That's an exciting new venture. Uh, now, Matt, in regards to waste to art, ah, this is uh, a nice little job for you to do. Are you officially cutting the ribbon for this or have been cutting the ribbon for this? Yeah, what's what's, what's just going cut on there. here? Yeah, just during the week, cut the ribbon oh, on, on waste to art official opening. So this is down at the uh, Western Plains Cultural, Cultural Centre. Correct. This is the, the new exhibit yeah. sort of uh, on the back of the latest Year 12 um Art Express. Here. Art Express, thank yep. you. I'm having a shocker there with that one. <laughs> art Express there today, exactly right. So this is the, the new one down there today, isn't it? Yeah, every year uh, we tell have us about it. Waste to Art. And I have talked about it before. Mm. Even though we'll have the Archibald, the full Archibald finalist exhibition in June this year, mm. my two favourite things at the Cultural Centre each year are Art Express and Waste to Art. Mm. And we've talked about Art Express a little bit before, and yes. obviously there were some interruptions during COVID, but Waste to Art, mm. I love going in and looking at the various things that people have created out of junk mm. and there's a, a gentleman who works at council and I've done or seen him do a bit of work with Debo Theatre Company Productions, Al mm. Stanger. Right, yes. I don't want to yes, give too much Al. away yes. but he has made another incredible piece of artwork right. that is worthwhile. So we're not talking about kids here now, we're, we're talking about anyone, 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 anyone can kids put this in. do go in it, there are okay. categories for kids, there are categories for schools for example, right. but right. anyone can go in it and every year I'm blown away by what Al creates and right. I don't want to build it up too much but again when I walked in and I saw one particular piece of artwork I said before I went up close and I look I said that's got to be Al Stangers and sure enough it was because it, it, was, just, it was just impressive yeah wow. that's right so Al's great but the theme this year is fast fashion right and Fast fashion. Fast fashion. So something that, that okay. I'm not an expert on. No, I'm, I'd, I'd, I look at you and me today, mate, and I don't necessarily say we're into the fast fashion world. That's but. right. But fast fashion in terms of waste and in terms of waste products, Okay. The, the some of the stats from when I did the opening, fast fashion accounts for up to 35% of microplastics that flow into the ocean. Right. So that doesn't sound great. No. Three out of five fast fashion items will end up as landfill, right. and you can so kind sound of like see that. Disposable sort of items that are worn once, maybe, and quickly thrown away, once, but, or but some of the nice fashion items you okay. see people get. Yeah. People might buy a dress and they can't wear that dress again because someone might see them when they've worn it before. Yes, it's we a probably, terrible thing when you do that, isn't it? That <laughs> is. We probably get a bit easier. I wear. I probably you wear get three or four suits and regularly. That's, or? that's what I wear. <laughs> I don't. I don't worry about people seeing me in the same dress again. <laughs> but but I've got three or four suits and yeah, I just yeah. rotate around that's those. It, it's a good thing being a bloke. We, they don't really sort of question that, do they, too much? Not really, no. That's right. I probably have a selection of ties. Yeah, but, that's right. But I, I do rotate around those as well. So that's something that certainly is – you can see that. You can see fashion items ending mm. up in landfill. Mm. But even pollution, there's some stats there around how much pollution is created by fast, fast fashion companies, mm. and that pollution could be more than, for example – 
international aviation and shipping combined. So really? it's not great My for the God, environment. It's huge, isn't it? Yeah. So taking some of these fast fashion items and then turn them into artworks, yeah, yeah. I think is really interesting. Seeing how we can use fashion items better, yep. I think it makes sense as well. Hey, so tell me, is, is this Waste to Art exhibit, is this uh, local artists or is it uh, international artists, state artists, Australian artists? Like, uh, Who actually is putting in for the exhibit? I think anyone can enter, right. but typically it is local artists. And so it's officially other, a competition too, is it? It is a competition, yeah, yeah that's right, right okay. yeah. We had to hand out some prizes there when we did the oh, opening. Oh, okay, cool. So the, there are other waste-to-art processes in mm. other council areas, so it's not exclusive to Dubbo. Right. And again, I'm not sure if you have to be a resident. I should probably know that, but you, I'm not sure if you have to be a resident right. to enter the competition. But it certainly does seem to be mainly hmm. local schools, local residents yeah. that are entering. And presumably, if you're in Bathurst, for example, there might be a waste to art exhibition in there, you would enter. Right, so like a regional sort of Yeah, that's idea. right. You would okay. enter enter those sort of processes down yeah. there. So it is something I'll find out for you and come back to you about that one Wonderful. to see whether you have to be local to enter. You it, and I might have to think about next year and put a Piece in, maybe. I don't know. Well, I've Are you seen, an artist? Uh, not at all, no. no but I, I've seen different things that have been put in and sculptures, yes. creations, a whole range of things. I mean, one of my favourites from years ago, because of, I suppose, my IT background, mm. was someone who had taken a range of circuit boards, computer circuit boards, right. and put them together, joined them together, and then cut around them to make a map of Australia. Yes. So it was a, a, a map of Australia, not detailed map in terms of where right. towns, et cetera, yeah. but uh, an outline so of the map of Australia made of circuit boards. Oh, wow. And then yeah. basically put up on a frame and hung up on the wall. Yeah. And I, I particularly like that one. Well, I so, find it very clever. I would never have come up with an idea like that. That's why they're far more clever than I am. And that, that's the thing that I get out of it. It's the creativity. Yes. You take a bit of rubbish, you take some junk, and you throw it in the bin or mm. you put it in landfill or you say, hold on, I could make something mm. out of this. I could use this rubbish here and make something artistic, in mm. inverted commas, out mm. of that. So mm. it's well worth going and seeing. At the moment, you've got Art Express and Waste to Art on at the same time. That's so wonderful. definitely worthwhile getting down to yeah. the Western Plains Cultural Centre. Well, I'm going to have to definitely get on down and have a check it out, I think. And the price is right. You'll pay zero dollars to Love go that. in and have a look at there. It's a perfect price. And there's a nice cafe there as well, yeah, Creo Cafe. Coffee. You can go and have good a look at Good bacon and rolls. Matt, I, uh, one of the great things I love about Dubbo is our desire to be involved in, in so many different community events and so many fundraising activities. I've talked about this in the past, how by um, nearly every weekend we've got something going on here in town whereby we're raising money for great causes or we're simply raising awareness of great causes. And, of course, this weekend, the Black Dog Ride. Now, I've got a feeling that uh, you got involved in this. <laughs> yes, How did you go, Mr. I, motorcycle Man? <laughs> I've never seen you on a motorcycle, by the way. Yeah, well, there you go. I haven't done it yet, so we're recording this before the ride starts because this podcast will go live to where when I'm somewhere out the narrow mine road from Dubbo well, to Ladies and gentlemen, if, if you see a bloke absolutely sweating it out there, <laughs> you'll know be, it's Matt. <laughs> it will be, be warm, actually. So the Black Dog Ride is a ride yes. that's been going now for 10 years, 10th anniversary this Amazing. year. Amazing. And Wayne Amore has been one of the main organisers. Terrific bloke, Wayne. Yeah. And mm. so I, I think they've done fantastic work there. And so they said to me, do you want to come along and be part of it? Mm. I said, well, look, I've still got my motorbike licence. I used to race motorbikes. Morris Park was a, a haunt of mine when I was very young. Oh, yeah, Revit. Okay, old, I didn't realise. Uh, Johnny Robertson and I think probably Derek Egford probably would have been bigger at the time. But right. Johnny Robertson definitely right. yeah. probably was president at the time or very involved in Morris Park. I remember when I was a kid there. And the gun riders, I mean, Max Robertson was a gun rider mm. when we were racing there. And mm. even... The Eggford brothers, Stuart, yes, Nigel, yes. and Jason, and yeah. uh, obviously Jason had a bad accident there, ended up in a wheelchair right, too, yeah. as a result of that. But they yeah. were the, the gun riders back yeah. in my day when I used to race out there. Yep. So when I did get my car license, I actually went and got my motorbike license at the same time. Right. Just thought it'd be handy and I've ridden motorbikes here and there, but I've yep. never worried about owning one. I thought mm. my life was too important to go and buy a motorbike. <laughs> but I did say in this ride, I said, look, Wayne, if you can organise a motorbike for me, I'm more yeah. than happy to do it. So work, rest, play here. Yep. We're good enough to lend me a motorbike. Oh, so good I on got your a, work, rest, play. Yeah, that's good right. Job. I've got a, a Yamaha Tenere 700, which is an adventure bike. I yeah, remember right. back in the They're old days. They're pretty big, aren't they? Are they a reasonable size? They are a reasonable size. But I remember in the old days, I reckon this is probably the the modern version of an old XT500. Back when I was a lot younger, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the XT500 was one of those off-road, enduro-type yep. bikes that you could 
ride on bitumen and then go yep. off road. And so I think the they had ones with the big suspension. Yeah, yep. but but still was okay on a road. So it wasn't mm. like a, I used to race motocross bikes, so they were pure motocross. You couldn't mm. ride them on a road. Mm. But these ones are more that sort of enduro type bike. But I think they call them adventure bikes now. Okay. And it's one of those things that, again, I just said, whatever bike you've got for me, I'm, I'm happy with yep. that. But it, it's actually been quite nice. I've ridden around the last few days just to make sure I'm comfortable with it, just riding around until I had been wearing my suit and pulled out my helmet and threw that on and away I went riding around the streets of Dubbo into various <laughs> meetings. So you get a bit of a different reaction when I'd you like walk into somewhere. I'd like to see a picture of that, actually. Well, I'll, I'll, try and I'll get one before I hand the bike back. But when you walk into a meeting with your helmet in your yes. hand, it's actually, you get a slightly different reaction out oh, of people. There he is. It's that cool mayor walking in here with his helmet <laughs> in his right. hand again. <laughs> so it's been, it's been quite nice getting back on a bike again. As I said, when people are downloading this, listening to this, I'll be out on the road. Yeah. They'll have 100 at least, but hundreds probably of riders going out. Yeah, they've got out. good numbers this year, apparently. Yeah. And from everywhere, too. It's not just Dubbo. They're oh, absolutely all right. Yeah, that's right. So you'll have a ride that'll go on Sunday morning from Dubbo to Narromine. I think there's a small stop there in Narromine, then on to Colli. Okay. I think lunch out at Colli and then yep. ride back there. So That's a good ride. Not having ridden a motorbike for long distances for you know, in a long period of time, I wonder which part of my body or which parts of my body I'm so looking sore. forward to next week's conversation. <laughs> well, I will give you a bit more of an update on it to how many Excellent. riders we had and all that sort of thing. But uh, look, a big thank you to Work Rest Play here mm. who were kind enough to lend me that yep. bike. And I've also managed to get a lend of a few bits yeah. of motorbike gear from friends as well. And you know what? It's, it's such a great cause, isn't it? The uh, the Black Dog ride. So do uh, you know much about the Black Dog? Oh, only from bits and pieces I've heard mm. over the years. But again, anything that focuses on mental health, mm. anything that helps try and raise awareness or yep. raise money for mental health, obviously incredibly important. It's the real sleeper in health in our community and mm. there are many more people affected by it than I think people either care to admit yeah. or than we know about. So anything that raises that awareness and males are probably the worst ones for it and we see that in some of the suicide mm. statistics that males are certainly more prevalent in terms of those stats. So raising awareness, yeah. if I can help out, if me getting on a motorbike riding for a few hours, maybe having sore hands or bottom for what's going to be sore <laughs> on me. Combination of both, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, probably. Uh, that... that be interesting. But yeah, look, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to it and a group of riders out there. Yeah, it'll be a fun day. It sounds like fun. Yeah, good on you, Wayne, and all the team, and have a great day tomorrow. Ah, now, we've talked about this quite a few times in regards to the Macquarie River Master Plan. Now, folks, you've all had your chance to uh, put your thoughts in and to uh, make a decision in regards to what you feel as though the right ideas are for the Macquarie River Master Plan. Here's the thing. This week is D-Day, because the decision's about to be made, I think, in regards to the Macquarie River Master Plan. Matt, am I on the right track with this? You are on the right track. This started back in January last year. We had the election and in December 2021. Yes. And I think it was somewhere in the 21st of December 2021 that we were inducted, sworn in as councillors. And at the very first meeting in January 2022, mm. we had uh, another motion that came forward in relation to Regan Park and tidying up some of the work there. And then a subsequent motion in February went forward to do the master planning process, mm. allocate some funds to it, etc. So it's certainly been some time coming. So this has been over a year. And mm. that, that seems long like process, a long process, isn't it, really? It is. And it seems like a long process mm. for people. They go, well, a master plan, surely you can't take that long to do it. But if you do a master plan properly, mm. you're going to take many months mm. or a year mm. to do that planning because you want to make sure you've got mm. community feedback, you've had the chance for the community to have a look at it, consider the plans, put that feedback in. Yeah. So we put out the final draft plans for public consultation. That consultation finished on the 17th of February. So people okay. Did you get a lot of, of feedback? Or? 46 submissions. Okay, that's pretty solid. It's reasonable. Now, there were about 450 surveys we received. Okay. And so out of those 46 submissions, so maybe many people in their surveys felt that Many of their things had been addressed. Mm. But anyway, 46 submissions. So yep. what's happening now as we speak or what's happening mm. in the past is that those submissions are being considered and there might be some minor adjustments and changes to the draft plans that were put out. Mm. But you're right, D-Day, mm. at the council meeting this week, so fourth Thursday of each month is our council meeting. Yep. So 23rd of March is our council meeting. That's when the draft plan will come to council, the submissions will come to council, recommendations to changes to those draft plans will yep. come to council. And then, unless we defer it, which is unlikely, mm. councillors will actually have a resolution at the end that will see 
a master plan for the North Precinct and the South Precinct. Right. So that'll be it. That'll be the master plan. Now, it doesn't mean that you can ever change it. I was going to say, once that master plan's in place, th- does that mean that's it? You, you've got to keep going back and referring to that master plan? Or if something changes, if there's, I don't know, more funding coming in, new idea, suddenly someone develops a new idea, can that be introduced to the master plan as like an amendment? or The master plan is really... A big picture plan, okay. and then you keep working on that. And you might have a new master plan in ten years' time, but it gives you various things to work towards. And I think once we get that master plan, we'll start working towards some of the smaller things that are in there, some of the restoration works, for example. Mm. And then we'll be looking for funding for some of the bigger parts of the mm. plan that come forward. So mm. it, it really is something that you say, "Well, here's our direction," mm. but you can change direction. Mm. But you need somewhere to start with. You need a, a starting point. I would imagine that. Normally what happens with these type of things is Mm. that it starts off with a master plan, we work towards bits of it, and then as different things change or different funding opportunities come up, you might modify or alter that master Mm. plan, but you're probably unlikely to go and do a whole new master plan for at least a decade. Mm. You really want something to work towards. So that's exciting. Now, if people have a look at that, the business Mm. papers come out each Monday by close of business on the Monday before the Thursday council meeting, those business papers will be there, including that master plan, okay. the final version of yep. that. Again, it's not final. So you have a final look council. over it. Mm. Have a final look over it. Mm. Contact one of your favourite councillors. Send them an email. Send them to all councillors if you want. Make phone calls. Do whatever. Yep. You've also got public forum at a council meeting where anyone can come along and they've got five minutes to talk about whatever topic they want to talk about. So you've got that opportunity. Once it gets to council, I'm sure there'll be some discussion and debate amongst councillors. Yep. Back and forth. When we do all that, there'll be a final vote for whatever changes, modifications, etc. cetera. Sure. There'll be a final vote. vote. Once that happens, there's a resolution of council and that will then be the master plan. Right. Whether I agree with it or not, mm. after that final vote, That's that'll it. be what I'll be going out yep. and talking to the community about and saying, mm. here's our master plan. Yep. My individual opinion won't matter. matter. We talked about be, this. That's right. <laughs> right. It'll be the opinion of the council, yep. the position of the council around that master plan. So it is exciting when mm. you've spent over a year going through various steps, community yeah. feedback, different discussions that we've heard out there in the community and then getting to that point where it finally is mm. going to be adopted by council, that is a pretty exciting point. So, hey, tell me, look, once once you've uh, adopted the master plan, once that's uh, been signed off and done and, uh, look, I'm not going to predict what's going to happen here on Thursday night or is it Thursday night, say? Thursday night. Thursday night. Um, what's, what's the next step with that? Does, does this then become part of is, – is there a plan then that's put into place from the master plan? In other words, does council then turn around and say, okay, let's get this thing started? Do we now start going out and searching for funding for – do we have a list of priorities as part of that master plan? Like how does it actually then become part of an action plan? It'll tie into various operational plans that we'll have going forward. Might tie into budget. So we've got a budget that we've already talked about that will be decided by the end of June. There might be some councillors who are keen to have some parts of the master plan enacted sooner rather than later. So they might Mm. try and get some – budget allocations as that budget process to start put towards funding. My general opinion at this stage is that we'll probably start doing some of those restoration work, some of the low-hanging fruit out of that master plan, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then look for opportunities where grants might be available. Sometimes it might be coming up towards an election, for example, and we might say, we've got some things that if you want to go and make election promises, here are some things to look at, and the master plan might be Mm. in there. We might then look at it in future years and say, what are our priorities for things that we might need to do in our community, mm. where does this sit in our priority level? Okay. Is it more important to go and do the Radry Cultural Tourism Centre or do the master plan or mm. start to do some of the parts of the master plan for the Macquarie River? Various things there. Now, again, you'll also have government departments will have different buckets of funding mm. and those buckets of funding will sometimes be focused on specific outcomes. Mm. So you can only apply for them if you've got a project that meets certain criteria. Mm. And so that might be, oh, look at this. There's a project that talks about riverine corridors mm. and you can go and, and do this. And fits into our master plan and we exactly should be going right. for this sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. So okay. a combination of all the things you talked about in terms mm. of the way that will look. But in 10 years' time, if we look back at what that corridor looks like and we look at the master plan we've got today, it'll probably be similar. Probably won't be identical, mm. but it'll probably be similar because that'll be the master plan that we've been using to do all of that overall planning. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, now, how about airport? Um, I'd like to talk about this in regards to potentially, I've, I've read there during the week, the fact there may be some changes being made in regards to, um, I suppose, the charges that Dubbo Airport... Um, is, is wanting to impose upon 
passengers out there. So you want to talk us through this because there are a few areas here to consider, I suggest. There's uh, right now, I think when a passenger goes out there to go on a plane, there's a charge that the Dubbo Airport imposes on as part of the, the, the overall pricing. Um, but there's potentially a discussion around it's going to be based on weight and the passenger. Do you want to clarify this for us, Matt? How does this work? Potentially? And not the individual weight of the passenger, just to clarify that there. <laughs> so 140 kilos, it's okay. You can still get on. <laughs> At the moment, we charge the airlines right. when they use the airport. Yep. And the airlines are charged on a per-passenger basis, and we do cost recovery of the security screening divided by the number of air, uh, number of passengers each airline has. Right. So basically, airlines are paying per passenger. Yep. They obviously pass that charge on to consumers yep. with their airplane tickets. One of the things that's mm-hmm. interesting for the way the airport's run and the income stream for the airport is that we might have wear and tear on our runway for mm. planes taking off and landing, but those particular aircraft might only have a few people in them. So Mm. you might find a Q400 that's capable of having 72 passengers on it. It might land with 10 passengers. Mm. We don't generate a lot of income from those 10 passengers, but there's more wear and tear put on the runway from that Mm. heavier plane, a a Q400's over 20 tonnes, for example. So one of the ways we're looking at, and again, this is something that we'll be going to council on Thursday, so I'm talking about it now because if people have got an opinion Mm. or a thought on this, then certainly, without a doubt, have a read through the business papers, contact a councillor, come along to speak at public forum. But the plan is to say, let's charge aircraft on weight and then reduce the per-passenger fee. So instead of paying a certain amount for a passenger, you know, again, doesn't matter how many you're on a plane, you'll pay a certain amount for the plane, which better reflects the wear and tear on a runway, and then a certain amount per passenger as well. I'm not convinced it will be the best way going forward. It's a proposal that's being put up by our staff. We'll look at it, we'll debate it, we'll discuss it at council on Thursday night and then go forward if mm. we need to with that. And it, it might not go somewhere, it might. But I'd, again, I'd recommend to the community to have a look through our business papers and just see what your thoughts are there. Mm. We don't want it ultimately to cost passengers more money because obviously yeah. those Which, which would be get, obviously the, the listeners' concerns, I'd suggest, right now. Is, yeah, is, that's right. is, is this a, like I think you've outlined it nicely there in regards to the, potentially the rationale behind the decision. Mm. Um, from a passenger's point of view and from a Dubbo listener point of view or this regional point of view, you may find the fact, though, that I'd suggest there would be quite a few people I'd suggest going, it's just going to cost me more money. It, it, at the end of the day, am I going to have to pay more money to go on a plane? Um, and is that council's intentions with this? Is that part of what their thoughts are? It's probably more an, a more even stream of money coming in rather than relying on passengers as they go up and down. The mm. aircraft landing and taking off, that's where we get the wear and tear on a runway, which is expensive to replace when we have to replace or repair that. Mm. So it probably is a more even stream of funding. In area, in times like COVID, obviously, that had a huge impact on our airport, but the airlines had a huge impact there as well. Mm. Mm. But they might have been flying in planes with only a few passengers on board. Again, I'm, I'm not convinced of it, but mm. it is something that's been put forward. We'll debate it. And Okay, and I suppose I'm giving my opinion slightly here before a decision of council, but once the decision of council is made, that'll be the decision going forward. But yeah. it's worthwhile having a look at. The other part that's in mm-hmm. up for discussion is charging for parking at the airport. Now, okay. you've got the secure car parking now, which you can pay for. You can park for free in the rest of the airport. One of the things that we have talked about in previous years is whether we should be charging for people to park there at the airport. That's a facility we've got there. Mm. People use that. We've got to build and maintain that car park. Should we be paying or charging people to use that car park? Or is just the fact that you're flying mean you're generating enough money for the mm. airport as well? Mm. That's one that's – and that's been up for discussion. I remember the last council was one thing that we discussed from time to time right. as okay. well. In fact, we did even – bring it forward as a draft idea at one stage. And the main complaints we got mm. were from councils from around Dubbo, outside of Dubbo, who said that it's all well and good for people in Dubbo. Mm. They could catch a taxi out at the airport or get a friend to drop them off. But a lot of these people were travelling from the region, the Walworths, the Burks, the Bawarans, the Cobars, and they had no choice but they'd drive in, leave the car there while they flew to Sydney, mm. and then pick up the car when they came back. So they thought it was unfairly penalising those people who were users of the airport. Mm. Again... When you look at how much people might spend on an overall trip when they use a plane, the amount you might charge for parking is probably minimal. But mm. anyway, let's see what it's, people it's, have to say it's about it. It's actually a really interesting point of discussion, though, because 
in making these decisions, you, you're starting to see, and this is for all the listeners, for all of us to understand the fact, there's so many factors that have got to come in in regards to making a final decision. And there's always, I suggest, too, a lot of emotion can be brought in on this. And particularly when we're talking about costings, and if it's going to cost people more money, then that's, that's, that's a personal factor that will affect people. So therefore, all these decisions uh, have to be weighed up against the economics of scale, what the costing is, how we're going to sort of balance the books in regards to it. If we can't balance the books this way, where are we going to get the money from for this? Because we still have to pay for this. It's still part of what we expect in our community. So I do find this discussion quite interesting because it does give everybody a greater insight in regards to the decision-making on Thursdays, not just simply about, oh, we'll turn up, or oh, this is the next motion, let's put a foot. No, yes. There's so much thought's got to be put into it before you go and sit down on Thursday to make your decision. And that's a really valid point. One of the things that many people in the community may not realise is that a lot of these things that come to council, I'd almost say just about everything that comes to mm. council, has been through some previous processes. It might have been through a workshop. Mm. It might have been through a committee meeting. It might have been through a standing committee meeting, which is one that we talk about mm. that's every second Thursday of each month. Yes, There are other processes that have occurred before it finally gets to a council meeting. And even to a council meeting, councillors get their business papers. They read through those. We make some phone calls to each other. Mm. We might talk to some staff, get some further information. We have a briefing where we go through these various things. So when we sit down, we might have spent hours on just one topic mm. before we finally put a hand up. And yes. I've had people say to us some, or say to me sometimes, oh, I, I watched the council meeting and there wasn't much discussion about that really important thing. And then people put up their hand and voted. And I said, well... There'd been hours and hours of discussion yes. before we got to that, and there might yes. have been a few points made on the night, but really, and not that it's you, you can't make a decision before you get to the council meeting. It's actually against the local government act. You can't mm. basically arrive at a decision until you get there because you might not have all the information. Mm. Something that someone says at the council meeting or a public forum might be the final thing that makes your mind up. So you can't make your mind up till you get to that council meeting. Mm. But you, sh you don't want to turn up and know nothing about no, that's topic. Right. You absolutely. need to have done your research. You need to have yeah. thought about that. You need to have some discussions discussion. with people. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. All those things that you do. Mm. And then you finally get to the council meeting. You go, right, now mm. is when we need to make the decision. The yeah. decision, not, yes. oh, you will think about it a bit further. And again, all those previous discussions, whether it's yeah. a workshop or a briefing or all those things, they're all great, but they're not decisions. No. They're literally discussions to help you make a decision. And when people say, oh, yes, we had a workshop about that, something should have happened. No. Mm. no nothing should have happened from a workshop mm. because there was That's no council resolution. We're, we're workshopping the ideas and exactly things like right. that. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And, and throwing around different ideas and coming mm. up with things. So a lot of these have been discussed well before it gets to council and then the council is when mm. you need to make the final decision. And some of these things you mean, oh, I can see, gee, both sides of that argument. Oh, I don't know about car parking and charging for it. That's good for our revenue and bad for that. Mm. So you're going through all those processes. But forget about all that. When you get to the council meeting, you've got to put your hand up That's one right. way either or way the other. Yeah. You, you cannot, there is no such thing in the Local Government Act as abstaining from a vote when mm. you're talking about a resolution of council, mm. you can abstain from a mayoral vote, but you can't abstain from a normal vote. So yeah. you've got to make it's a, a commitment decision. there, yeah, absolutely. one way or the other. Well, Matt, we're at that part of the show, the exciting little bit. It's the part I look forward to every hour. That's it. We finish it off with this week with, of course, our limerick. So, Matt, what have you got for us this week? I'm interested to hear in regards to what the limerick's going to be because there's been a few areas we focus on today. I can't go past. Waste to art. Of course does, you can't. It does yes. seem to be one of the things I do talk about a lot with yes. the Cultural Centre. So my limerick this week is about waste to art, and it goes Wonderful. like this. There once was an artist so smart, she turned fast fashion waste into art. With colours so bright, they transformed the night and gave old garments a sparkling new heart. Oh, I do love that. You know, it's a well done again. Well done. One of those things I suggest, the fact if I ever put an entry in, or if you or I probably ever put an entry in, I have a feeling our art would be probably waste to waste. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I'll, I'll use that in future. <laughs> there it is, exactly. All right, folks, that just about wraps us up for another Merrill Memo. Until next week, everybody, I want you to get out there, enjoy, I suggest, what's going to be a beautiful week. We've got those couple of little hot days there, but the rest of the week's going to be absolutely sensational. Go and enjoy it. Have some fun in our beautiful region. Until until next week, take care. Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.